Hello and welcome to the Reinventing Education podcast. I'm your host, Brendan O'Leary. I'll be joined soon by my co-host, Rob McLeod. And tonight we're talking to an early years educator, Mark White, who's a colleague of mine and has a specialism in play responsive learning, loose parts play, and everything to do with integration of play into teaching and learning. We're going to dig into the strengths and the challenges of a play-based approach. I'm going to see how it might apply to our everyday life in school and at home. Speak to someone like yourself who's, who's got a lot more experience and uh, can most likely teach me a few things to help me expand my horizons and understanding of this because I think it's a critical thing to consider in education. Well, I, I hopefully I can help you play with those ideas. Cool. I'm very lucky to say I work alongside Mark. We've had lots of great chats and we've been on missions to gather loose parts. He's a very passionate educator and, and um, knows a lot in the area of play-based learning, play-responsive learning and loose parts place. Too often in education, we use uh, a term and we think we know what each other's talking about. So maybe a place to start just to make sure we're all on the same playground to begin with. What is play-responsive play? What is open-ended play? What are they not? Or what are some common confusions people might have around some of these terms? I think that's a key area to start because I think that what is um, tends to happen is people think that play is something different from learning. And I think play is a state where you are learning uh, because play is a joyful moment where you're trying something out, you're prototyping, you're beta testing, you're making mistakes, and you're not worried about it. You don't uh, have an agenda. There's no um, specific goal in mind apart from the actual joy of the play itself. And through that play becomes skill building or understanding something new or hypothesizing. It, even for the smallest child, you know, figuring out that this material will do this. They're figuring out the very act of a, what, the scientific process and what that means that's one of the key things about play is a joyful experience that is basically ownership by the person involved in the play at that moment or a bunch of people involved in that play at that moment. And I think that's where people get a bit mixed up. I think there are a lot of what happens is that people give activities that might be playful, but there's actually an agenda or a perceived goal or an output or an outcome that is worked towards that isn't the player's or the playee's agenda or goal. So I think in terms of being play responsive, what I try to do, which is slightly different from this idea of play-based uh, which is that we have play in classrooms and we try and learn through play, is looking at what the kids are doing with play and helping to enhance or build or participate or react to or in provoke something. And it may not take off in any way, shape or form, but it's there to be very responsive. And sometimes just staying away from the playful moments that children, particularly because they, they will learn despite teachers. That's the key thing. Teachers often get in the way of learning that comes through play because they're thinking that there should be, oh, I need an end goal for this. I need a finished product. And that's not the point of the thing. It's the actual process of the playful and joyous kind of moments that the kids have or adults have when we play around with things that stick in our heads. And I think the stickability factor of a skill or an idea or a concept or a new hypothesis, even though it may not be technically correct, 
actually sticks much quicker through play than if you were to formally learn it, you know, like through memorization or iteration of a procedure, for example. So that's kind of where I see play is. It's a very intimate, joyful act of learning. Yeah. No, I just, I wanted to take that in. Intimate and joyful, I feel, are two words that don't get thrown around a lot in common educational speak. When you started teaching, did you begin from this sort of more play-centric focus, or was this something that you came across as something that was solving problems you were seeing in classrooms? I think it's funny that you say that, because I think I've always been very play and child-centered and connected to the kids' agency of choice, ownership, and voice, which is some of the international baccalaureate terms that we kind of use. But, you know, they're common threads with any kind of progressive or democratic kind of education. I was always playful in trying to learn how to teach. Over the years, I got pushed around into like formal constraints through national curriculums, um, transitions between different lessons, even in primary years, hiding away time and all these kind of things that kind of not seeming to allow joyful, playful, intimate acts that are personal to you. You know, they really feel something you own. And I've now realized that perhaps I'm coming back to what I used to feel like about what education was. And it was actually uh, in my probationary year with Mrs. Lazenby, where now I went to a reception class and she had it like she just let the kids enjoy joyful play. So that was that was when I was like 21 or two. So and then I got it got squashed out of me here and there over the years, you know, substitute teaching or surviving in a school and uh, then having tough classes, blah, blah, blah. But what I didn't realize is perhaps if I've made them more playful or more engaging or more, you know, agency driven by the students themselves who had, you know, time to take on projects that they were interested or fascinated or uh, excited about, I wouldn't have had those tough classes because I, I lost the idea of trusting children in their own sense of wanting to learn, often playfully, and, uh, and to actually honor that with, with kids as well. Of course, there comes. There are obviously um, times where you, you you're stepping in to think about appropriateness and things like that, and 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 make sure that there's um, the skills that allow things to go smoothly. And that's a building process too. That's that can be done playfully. So I've kind of gone around the houses to come back to being playful again, if if you know what I mean. Yeah. And now I'm curious, could you walk me through a day or a week or a month or a unit, whatever, of what we would see in your classroom if we went in there? For me, I'm still trying to wrap my head around like, how much is this? Is this all the time? Is this most of the time? How, how have you integrated? And maybe also just for clarity, what age group are you working with right now? So right now, I w- I'm working with a kindergarten class of four to five-year-olds. So basically, my day starts with uh, their, their kind of routines that they kind of put things away, and it's very relaxed. And um, they self-assess where they, they are in getting these jobs done. So they, 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 they let me know when they're, they're done. And then depending on what happened, like out of uh, today, uh, over the weekend, I think Saturday school had been making snowmen out of some Play-Doh and they'd noticed this. And that became a a, a real attractant, you know, that somebody had created something. 
And that became something that we brought up later in the day and became like, uh, like, oh, well, how, how did they do that? Do you want to do it too? And that was like reacting to what they'd seen in the classroom. But a lot of the time, I think the kids see the kind of ideas of uh, what do you want to try and look at and do today? But the moment we're connecting to spaces and how we use spaces around the classroom. So I actually had some provocations put out uh, deliberately by me, which was all these lovely cut pieces of wood, all different shapes, sizes, some old kind of like driftwood and some like longer branches, some cut little logs and some very small pieces and just left it there and just saw what happened. And then I had balances out there as well with a bunch of materials to see what they would do with those. They were looking at scales and balances last week. So I still kept them out there because there's still this interest. And they've also were developing or still developing these ideas of, of play as a shop and a shop as a, a shop front and thinking about money. And I know Brendan was there actually at one time where they were really interested in using money and thinking about money and playing with money and exchanging money. And again, that was being responsive to those ideas. And for me as a teacher, what I'm assessing is then, oh, they've got an understanding of value. They've got an understanding of money has a worth. And it's, it gets very sophisticated in my monitoring and looking and seeing what the kids know um, that helps me have a greater understanding of, oh, perhaps this might help take them a little bit further or extend it or not, or just keep well away because it's just going really nicely anyway. And I'm particularly trying to encourage the idea of um, them scribbling or writing down or putting their ideas in a, in a physical form, either sketching it, scribbling it, or using paper from the waste paper basket and creating things. And I noticed off the bat, we're doing about decorations too and Christmas and how we decorate uh, for different festivals or celebrations. And they were starting to make presents and things today. So that was quite exciting. And they were fully forming what a present looks like. They knew that there were ribbons. They knew that it had a shape, a 3D shape. And that was very fascinating, just watching them trialing and erroring to get to their product, you know, and in a very playful, joyful way. So, yeah, I'm lucky enough to team teach or be in Mark's classroom pretty regularly. And um, the idea of various areas of the room being left so that play can happen in different ways there and the outside area as well. So I'm going to bring in this idea now, Mark, of loose parts play, which is a big parts of your teaching and learning and um, both in its its big loose parts and small loose parts. It's, um, it's an integral part of what you do, I think. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So for, for me, loose parts is any any kind of material and they, they can actually be pre-made toys, you know, like a cash register. That, but they're, they're simple materials that, that can be just utilized to express and develop their own kind of imagination or thoughts or hypothesis of what this does and putting things together and putting materials that go together or don't normally go together, but can go together and usually in an imaginative or creative way. So I noticed that the kids actually moved away from the loose part pieces of wood that, that I had all different kinds of and actually started to bring in cars and cars as a loose part to drive around almost like landscapes that they created with the natural wood parts that they had that were all different shapes and sizes. So that was quite exciting that they were actually forming terrains and topography. And there was one, one particular piece that was like a speed hump 
So they were driving over that. So I'm thinking, oh, they've got concepts of speed humps and, uh, you know, and, you know, in transportation, you know, in a city, they must have gone over one of these or something, you know, where they had to slow down. So it was like very interesting to see that these loose parts and uh, outside, as I say, I tried to keep there's no real difference between the outside or inside play. It's all, you know, opportunity for play and learning or learning through play or play playful learning and that they combine lots of loose parts in many different ways. And recently, I've got all these big pallets, old pallets that were being chucked away with other bits of wood. And I've got these cubes recently that the kids are just absolutely making into fascinating structures that are on their imaginative games or creative kind of conduit to, to, to making uh, kind of a hypothesis about how this works, and then and then through that I can use like uh, language like uh, in through under, you know where are you going now? What are you going through here? What what are you doing? Are you going somewhere special? And then it just gives me some opportunity to get a range of of their internal thinking too. So I'm trying to think of like everything you're saying sounds great. I'm trying to think why would you not be doing this with youngsters? And I think two things that come up possibly from critiques that I've heard are things like safety. Although the things you're talking about, loose parts sounds fairly safe. You're not, at least from what I've gathered, uh, mentioning like what I think was it New Zealand or Australia who had like the junkyard school where kids were like playing with parts of like discarded saws and old machinery. And like there was like potentially lethal loose parts happening there. Um, it doesn't seem like that's what you're advocating. But where do things like safety, where do things like bravery or dealing with, you know, especially working with the little ones, like frustrations, fighting these sorts of things, how are those handled in, in your classroom? So, so one of the key things is the idea of trust. And I, I trust that kids don't really want to hurt themselves. And they don't really want to hurt others. You know, of course, there's, you know, accidental moments when they're using a big piece of bamboo. And of course, they haven't gauged, you know, like depth perception in terms of swinging it around and obviously can have a safety or a factor involved with that. But I think the key is I'm trying to give the kids the trust so that they feel that they have security in their own in their own challenge and where they're pushing themselves. Try not to say don't. I try to make it more open-ended. You know, um, can you do it like this? Show me how you can do this in a, in a different way. If, if they're feeling that they're not comfortable with climbing, you know, straight up to the top of this ramp. So I had this with a, a choice time, which was a cross-grade of time in the day, where the smaller kids were actually working with slightly older kids, and they were looking and challenging each other. So one kid could take the bike and zoom down the ramp off a pallet, kind of laid up against some pallets, down a ramp on the bike. The other girl wanted to do it, but she knew she couldn't do it, but she wanted to do it, so she walked it down. And for her, that was her you know, challenge, that was her risk, that was her safety too. And it's giving that opportunity and trust and uh, agency for kids to to deal with their own safety and helping coach coach that you know to to help them uh, feel comfortable with them making choices for themselves about where they feel safe and how they feel safe and what can they do to feel safe also to challenge themselves to put themselves at a risk a playful risk it's often with you know already made materials that you know break or fall apart 
they'll snap like plastic things snap. This idea of being responsive and an observation. And, you know, I always tie it back to Freire's stuff where a lot of Freire's kind of pedagogy of the press was about observing people and then bringing it out. You know, what advice can you give to teachers who might want to move in that direction? Um, but maybe they're a little bit afraid that they're not doing enough or they're not doing the right thing. Where does observation and responsiveness come in to learning? It seems that you're giving everything to the kids but you're actually there as a supportive adult who could know of, of consequences. So you're able to trust kids and let, let those things come out. So it's always just being able to step away and, and step in and uh, allow the, the expression of the kid to come first. It's kind of really strange that you are monitoring it in a, a very real time way. And you're questioning, ah, this is a challenge moment for the kid. They want to do it. I don't think if they just tumble or fall over here that they're going to be hurt. But for some, it's all about safety. But that means you would have to cover the kid in bubble wrap or cotton wool, and they wouldn't be able to physically learn anything about themselves or how they use their hands and their feet and their mind to do something. So I, I do have a big believer in using tools as well. So that my, my four-year-olds have used saws and hammers and we have safety glasses and we have some central agreements on how to use these tools so that we do teach and coach. It's not like just a absolute free for all. So it is a learning, sometimes a more, more formal learning opportunity, skill-based. And then sometimes it's more free if it's in a play context, kind of like a river and seeing, seeing where those obstacles are, seeing, ah, how can I, how can I flow around it or shall I leave it alone? Or it's, it's kind of very iterative, always trying to see what's happening next or what is going to come out of this moment. Is there a inquiry question that's constantly on your dashboard in those moments when you're being like the river, when you're being flexible, open, present, responsive to what's happening. I was trying to, for myself, piece it together like, oh, what could I take from what Mark's saying? Like, it's something like, is is this now what is best serving this kid's learning as learning as that sort of intimate, joyful thing? Is there is there one question or a few questions that are kind of always informing where you would go to next. This challenge, I think, is just to allow kids to be. And as you say, see where you are at that moment, at that now. Is it a balanced thing, for example? Am I, am, am I going to have to look at their idea of what balance is and help support that idea of what balance is? You know, like having the bike and walking it down the ramp for her it would be an inquiry in, oh, how do these things balance? Can it run down by itself? And just, you know, try to give maybe some avenues, maybe coaching, showing. Most of what kids do come from their peers anyway. You know, they get tips or help from their friends. A lot of it is peer-to-peer -peer interaction and learning from their friends through play. What I would say, I would try to keep like, where are they going with here? How can I help that inquiry or that hypothesis that they're working on now, that concept they're working on? And how can I enrich it take it a little bit further and help it kind of stick holistically into the, the gestalt of them being growing little human beings. Can you say a little bit about the framework of those skills or concepts they're looking at? And as well, I was really interested, a few minutes ago, you mentioned the idea of agreements around tools. And give me just one moment to go off and make a little side comment here. I don't know if this story is actually true. It was told to me early in my teaching career. And even if it wasn't authentically true. I think it's a good uh, 
analogy or metaphor. I was told by a head of school that there was a playground where they did not put a fence around the playground because they wanted kids to have sort of the full reign of there was a combination of like open space and playground equipment and also some sort of, I guess, large loose parts anyways of like tires and things like that that the kids could kind of play with self-organize. And what they found, despite their excited intentions, was the kids kind of just hovered really closely towards things and didn't make use of like the few acres of space that these kids had apparently in this playground. Then they put a fence around the playground and then miraculously within hours, kids were making use of all of the open free space within this. And whether or not this is actually true, the kind of like moral of the story was like, well, actually sometimes putting the fence around the freedom actually brings about more exploration, more freedom, more play, this sort of thing. So I'm curious, where do those impositions of shared cultural agreements between you and the students come in to kind of guide and inform and create maybe some boundaries? And then what are you kind of beholden to in terms of that framework of concepts or skills that students need to have? I think that's a that's a, a good story, and it's it's funny. It kind of reminds me of how the um, do you know about the Berlin playgrounds? No, I don't. This is actually came up through the um, insurance companies, the actuary, you know, surveys that they do, and they found that kids with lesser opportunity for self-regulated risk or challenge in later life will have more insurance claims because they haven't worked out what risk or could mean. So the actual insurance companies in Germany pushed, in Berlin, for example, pushed to make sure that playgrounds in Berlin engage children in risk and risk management. And that's what I tried to do conceptually or intellectually for the kids. What can they do outside of what they've already done? And that's why I will often bring in new materials in different ways or different contexts. We collected these cubes that were actually used as um, seating and I left them there. And the kids are now wonderfully playing with all these uniform cubes in such exciting, interesting ways. Again, they're extending themselves And I am looking to see if I might have to put some essential agreements there. But so far, no, because they they don't want to get hurt. They want to be playful. They want to have a good time. They want to play with their friends. They wanted to make it inclusive. And um, they want to challenge themselves. So it's all about what can they do with these things. The playground now is uh, well populated with all of these large, loose play And um, it is beautiful to see parents and kids rebuilding and building and moving around. Yeah, Mark, maybe give us a little bit more of an idea of and how uh, interactions with nature plays a part in this. So I think this kind of um, dialogue with having materials that allow kids that looseness and and I'll let them carry a big full-size pallet together, like four-year-olds carrying a pallet over to position it in another way. And they're working together. They're working out, you know, balance and feasibility of putting this pallet in a different position and how it's going to work. And they're building their own kind of parkour courses and obstacle courses. And recently, these blocks have been very exciting because they're big, they're clunky, but they're they're also portable by the kids to change and put into different spaces. It seems to be like a whole mesh of interconnected, interrelated objects and um, experiences that the kids can 
have access to freely. And, you know, that's the exciting thing. It's like never ending and it's always changing. It's organic and it's changing because the kids are making it change or their skill set is is improving in some areas. Like even the smaller, smaller children who are three are actually gaining that challenge and skill building from climbing the pallets and running down the ramps. And you can actually see their confidence and their joy in it and in achieving something has been very valuable. And that goes on to the idea of planting out uh, mondo grass using full-scale tools, like they were using proper spades and trowels, all full-size. I, I don't get kids' yucky little plastic trowels that are pointless. They have to use the full you know, complement of tools. They had to go and use the wheelbarrow and work together to make sure they didn't tip it, and they did. And then they took it over and we planted out some uh, mondo glass to green the garden. So it's always that exciting possibility of what is going to change, what's going to happen next. And it's in the kids' hands. Don't make the best play course. Don't make it better because you've just taken your adult agenda and you thrust it on kids and you had no inkling about what they were excited or interested in or what creativities had come into course or the thing that they made that wasn't right to an adult's mind. Oh, the splinters are the kids going to get. Well, yeah, splinters, that's okay. Get a splinter. You'll know how to handle a piece of wood so you don't get a splinter next time. You mentioned some of the older kids getting involved here. I'm typically kind of teaching grades four, five, six, seven, kind of the middle school age. Everything you're saying makes total sense to me with my experience in kindergarten, with my experience in primary. Why does this disappear the further we move up a school? And <laughs> that I realize that could be an hour long answer. And on top of that, what could I bring to myself, you know, where our skills aren't balanced? or things like that, the skills I'm focused on are like, you know, the writing curriculum from the English curriculum. Where where could I bring some of this into a middle or a high school or even a post-secondary context? I think or am I, am I envisioning play incorrectly here by detaching it from education? No, I think, I think play is integral to education. I was teaching grade five two years ago. I would have, well, like, like the old idea of a genius hour, where kids could just like enjoy their own time making a project. I'd help them with skill building and they'd be playful about it. And in fact, then I started bringing in a maker tinker space that the kids to act could access at any time in the classroom and have materials and tools. And I had some kids who were more like uh, experienced with these and they were almost like the, the cohort teachers. What we tend to think is that they only have play at recess, but, you know, learning should be a playful activity. So it could be that, you know, if you're writing, you know, if you're doing a genre, get the uh, the costumes that connect to that genre. You know, if it's a horror thing, get them dressing up in horror, act it out. I mean, make it more visceral, more real. The playful moment of, of showing their play you know, with the roles that they were going to do and the props that they needed and putting those together. So it was kind of powerful to think that play should still be there. But as you say, Rob, it goes. There was another thing I would say is that I always try to give kids at least two hours outside every day. Play can be there, but but you, you feel as though you're not teaching or you're not earning your salary or your whack or your money or whatever if you're not in contact with kids in a teachery way rather than a playful way. I, I would say here, 
Michael, I'm good to talk about the idea of assessment within play, responsive learning. You've done a lot of work recently with the idea of learning stories. And, you know, we do have a framework, and we use an Ontario framework for the kind of skills and objectives that kids are, are doing. But what you'll do is you'll, you, you kind of, you've internalized a lot of that framework and you have references so that you can see it when it appears in your learning. And that plays a big part in your assessment. And um, that's kind of a, a different way to to teach, to learn, to assess. I just wonder if you could tell us a little bit about this idea of learning stories as a as a way to assess and reflect. So what I've tried to do is, is that these learning stories should be really the kid's story about how they felt about them doing a particular thing that they enjoyed and really trying to give it to the in the kids' hands by letting them through video, largely through video, and them showing the, the, the things they were doing or the materials they made or how they were playing and even taking photos of what they were playing at the time. And the Ontario curriculum that we use, what I tried to do was think of the skills there or the concepts there that I could perhaps identify and have the kids um, in a conversation, in a conferring kind of context, sometimes during the activity or during the play and try to capture the kids' understanding through their own words. You know, for example, I gave one for um, a kid about, uh, we're doing about spaces and how people use spaces, community spaces. And one of the learning outcomes was, uh, can the child talk about space and how they use it and think about others? You know, and one particular kid started to think, oh, well, perhaps if I did it this way, it wouldn't be dangerous. If So it was like really trying to use those outcomes to help enlarge on the on the conversation I have with the kids, the dialogue I have with the kids. And not always they can articulate. So I would just use my observations of what I saw too, which is my best guess of what what they understood about that skill, for example. And just walk me through this. Learning stories is something I've heard about plenty, but what's like the duration of this and who's the audience? Is this something that's reported back to parents? Is this something that's reported internally within the school for, for anyone who's unfamiliar with the idea of learning stories? So you've you've got this story. Who who is the audience for it? So ideally it's the child themselves. I mean, that's that's the, the real learning story is their story into some learnable moment that kind of came out of play or something that we did. But of course, these go to parents too, because we want the parents to know what the kids are learning. So I I kind of preface a lot of the learning stories that I do do with the children with like class newsletters and posts. And I posted like ideas and things that the kids were doing, you know, lots of pictures of the kids in moments of play. And then that helps to preface the learning story that I will send to parents I actually did one on the on them setting up the shop, but it it also helps me um, understand you know where they are with them thinking about these things. So learning stories are very powerful ways of kids to see and know that what they have learned. You've said a lot about freedom and choice and how you kind of get out of the way of the learning. And of course, that's true to some extent, but the very romantic notion of the kids just going and playing and that's all they need is only part of it. Yeah, they want that freedom and choice. But, you know, we talk a lot about that zone of proximal development and your your job is being right in there and deciding when you should act and how you should act and which directions you should kind of nudge the kids or uh, provoke or, or reflect on. 
the romantic notion underplays the a complexity of what you're actually doing because I think having the right attitude and the experience in that environment is the difference between a, a richer version of play. I, th- I think you're right. We were looking at candles, the idea of decorations and community and coming together and what that all feels like and means. And I've noticed that, you know, I, I said earlier that they saw that Saturday School had made snowmen. So they're now excited about making decorations for Christmas. So the, the skill building in that, in terms of what they're creating and making, comes out of prior knowledge, perhaps what they know of before. And also me showing them lots of stuff or them researching or looking at lots of stuff or having a look at um, the, the tree outside that we have, you know, that has already decorations on. So it's it's not like you just, hey, go and play and we'll come back to you 20 minutes or an hour later. There's often uh, moments where they they were creating their decorations today. And there were, one kid was asking me, oh, can I make this? And I said, well, is there a reason you can't? And they said, oh, no, there isn't. So they were able to understand decorations can be anything. But they were playing with the notion of what decoration on a Christmas tree can be anything that they feel is decorative. Again, that would be something I could assess. This kid can make decisions and make a novel a novel idea come to fruition, something that is personal to them. So it's, it's kind of always exciting. It's, it's If I'm not enjoying myself in the class, I can almost guarantee the kids aren't either. For teachers who want to do this, but maybe have budget constraints, well, I'm sure you're under budget constraints, which teacher isn't under budget constraints, but for the teacher who wants to apply some of these things that you're discussing about, but doesn't have perhaps a budget for this, what are some ways, some creative, playful ways to be able to provide the kinds of resources you're talking about, or where are some good places for people to go look to find sort of, you know, the play starter kit 101 of some fundamentals you would recommend? Uh, well, how shall I say this? Start looking around the environment. Start looking in dumpsters. Start looking outside shops where there are bread boxes and that they're not using anymore. Pallets of wood, chopped up wood, any kind of loose part like bottle tops or offcuts from the local DIY shop. There's so many ways that you can get materials that are not, well, they're free. Lovely pebbles off a beach, sea glass, being inventive with what you can bring in and offer the kids. They may not use those things straight away. You may invite them to look at them. You may play with them yourself as an invitation, but they may not think that they're worth their time at that point in time. You know, and that's fine too. Play Scotland has an amazing loose parts kit, how to do it and what you can collect that is mostly free. It's basically just giving playful objects, loose parts objects that have an open-ended arc in their life. And they will be played with again and again in many different contexts and ways. The pieces of wood that I got, we found out they all had a different timbre or sound. It was just fascinating. So we were doing a lot of play, uh, like a xylophone. You know, why was this one so different to this one? You know, it was just fascinating. And that's just three bits of wood. So it's it's very exciting that it doesn't cost anything to do loose parts, really. Well, I think, Mark, we've given lots of people, I'm sure, lots of things to think about and ways to move their own classrooms a little bit more towards a play responsive environment. And any kind of words for parents who are wanting to bring this into the, the home? Parents are some of the best play workers around because they're with their kids most of the time. What parents hopefully don't do is 
think that what they're doing is anything less important what happens at school. Playing with your kids in interesting, exciting ways uh, with loose parts. And as I say, you don't need expensive toys or made toys. In fact, they actually can stifle or disrail play in lots of ways because they're only one thing. They only work in one way. They only have one kind of choice where lots of loose parts or lots of natural materials often have many different ways of being played with and play too with the kids. So I'm certainly developing my skill, my craft or my understanding right now. Be playful yourself. I hope parents and teachers play and have fun. Beautiful. Yeah, thank you so much, Mark. This is a great chat. And I think even just for myself personally, at kind of a point of trying to do a few new things in my class and with my teams and stuff like that, this has definitely sparked ideas in myself. So thank you for that. And with my son as well, to your last comment. Today was St. Nicholas Day in Belgium. So this is like where Santa, but not Santa, he's a different guy, comes on December the 6th. Yeah. And uh, my son did get a little toy piano. He's two. And then you get the orange as well. We did. We got the mandarins. Mandarins. The whole nine yards. Mark was a curriculum coordinator at the German school over here. Really? Yeah. Sorry, of which German school? The one in Kobe. Mm. Japanese German school. That's that's episode two when Mark tells the stories of his time as a curriculum coordinator at the German school in Kobe. He's got many, many fun stories. Uh, I have to think carefully about how which ones I tell. We'll do it. We'll do a back and forth because I'm currently at the German school in Brussels here. So oh, fantastic. Well, thanks very much, Mark. I shall see you tomorrow. Right and really? early. Uh, so you can't help me with the planks. We'll see. I'll, I'll, I'll let you know. I need I to pick have... up 50, 50 planks to make the outdoor classroom. Well, I'm, I'm driving the truck, so I need maybe I need I need someone to hold my hand. All right. Two tonner. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Good night. All right, Mark. Cheers, Mark. Pleasure, man. See ya. Bye-bye.